Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lester and you are listening live. A very good morning to you on this Saturday the 12th of November 2022. This morning over breakfast we are talking about Bloom, we are talking about Gagné, we are talking about all the different taxonomies that exist in teaching and how they might coexist. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Well, it is a very exciting weekend, Um, certainly in the teaching spheres that I'm in. We have got the Language Show Live happening as we speak. Um, Lots and lots of linguists, lots and lots of members of the MFL Twitterati, of course, and uh, translators and other language professionals all gathering together to talk about the benefits of language learning, to talk about why it should be done. Um, I did my talk yesterday. I talked about reading literature in translation, which will probably come as no surprise to any of you who are friends of the show. Um, you guys know that I love books. I love languages. And so when it came time to um, to pitch my talk to the language show this year, of course, I had to combine the two. Of course, I had to talk about reading foreign language literature. But kind of the crux of my talk was that we shouldn't be put off by the fact that we read literature in translation. You know, we, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't be embarrassed about reading literature in translation. Even those of us who are linguists, there is absolutely nothing wrong with, with reading books, with looking at literature in your first language, because it gives you a whole new way to access it. So that was kind of what I was talking about yesterday. If you had signed up for the language show, but you missed my talk, you can, of course, go back in and... Um, and rewatch it at any point over the next three months. Um, I'm assuming that if you aren't signed up for Language Show, then it's because you are not a languages person, and so my talk is not worth going up and buying a um, a late entry ticket for. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was a it was a good time. It was a good time. So I know that lots of people who would normally listen to the show are out listening to that today. Um, we've also got the Teach Meet and um, Teach Meet leadership icons happening this weekend. Um, So lots of school leaders are gathered together in order to share best practice. um, And that's really, really exciting for them. So all sorts of things happening in the teaching sphere this weekend, which always interests me. We do so much at the start of the year. I always think autumn term is the busiest term for, for teachers in the UK because we cram so much in to these 14, 15 weeks between September and Christmas. Um, And yet it is also the longest term, which probably is why there is so much put in, to be honest, Um, and and the most stressful one, as in my opinion, um, as we are getting back into the the, the swing of being in the classroom, uh, as we are reaffirming our expectations with our students and all that fun stuff. So once again, I'm going to do my my semi-regular reminder 
to practice your self-care, um, whether you are a teacher or not. Um, we all know that some people struggle during this time of year. Um, lots of people find the winter months difficult. I personally love them. Um, I much prefer the winter months to the summer months, um, but lots of people don't. So do make sure that regardless of your line of work, you are finding time. You are No, I'm sorry, you are making time because we all know that time cannot be found. It does have to be made. Uh, you are making that time to prioritise yourself, to prioritise your own care, because that is so, so important. Um, thankfully, that's about all that has been happening um, lately. At least that's all that's been happening in my sphere over the last week. The news seems to be full of, uh, of, of pop culture at the moment, as I'm a Celebrity has got underway. Lots of people talking about of course, whether it's appropriate for politicians to to appear on reality TV. Um, I don't really have a, a, a thought on that. I don't really have a comment on that. Um, I think I think I'm not well enough informed to make a decision um, or to have an opinion is is what I think. But I know plenty of people do. And and that, I think, is something that we need to practice a lot more is the idea of actually it's okay if I don't have an opinion on something. It's okay for me to say, do you know what, I don't know enough about it. I've not watched this series of the show, I don't know what behaviours are going on, and so I'm I'm not going to have an opinion. Because it's not necessary all of the time. Oh, actually, no, I did lie. I did lie. Something interesting did happen yesterday morning, but the, um, the news of the language show uh, preparing for the language show kind of got in the way of me really processing it. And that was in MFL, we had new specifications sent out for the new GCSE. Uh, first teaching 2024, first assessment 2026. Um, it doesn't seem like two minutes ago, we had the latest new GCSE uh, that I'm still calling the new GCSE. And so we're going to, to, to have that again. Um, I think so far only only French uh, specifications and assessments, uh, sample materials have been produced. Um, I looked through them. Uh, I'm not massively impressed, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I tweeted about this yesterday. I, I don't believe in reading aloud. I don't think that asking a student to read aloud is a good indicator of how well they speak a language. I don't think that reading aloud actually proves anything about communication skills, um, and so I don't like that addition to the speaking. Uh, and, and the speaking is my main area. The speaking is a bit that I like to teach the best. So I am, I'm, I'm very sad that, uh, that that has come in. I'm also not happy about the addition of dictation to the listening. Um, dictation is, is very, very French. It's got a firm place in French pedagogy. Um, French schools love dictation. Uh, and, and they see it as a way of really cementing um, grammar rules and spelling. And that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, I was trained never to use dictation. Um, I trained at a time when we were being told that dictation did not work. Um, it didn't have any kind of, of decent pedagogical application. And so, again, it was just something that, that teachers did because it was what they had always done. And so I, I do find it hard to shake that mentality. I think quite often when particularly 
when we train and we don't talk about this enough our training is often very formative particularly if you are a trainee teacher who is not very confident i wasn't a very confident trainee at all and so when you have these lecturers these people who are positioning themselves as experts lining up and telling you what is and is not good practice you do really internalize that and so having been told by my trainers that that dictation is not good practice i was very shocked to to see it crop up in in the exam um Again, I've not had the time really to look into the theory behind dictation. That is something that I will do um, probably over the summer holiday, if I'm honest. But what did occur to me uh, and what I do think I'm, I'm able to, to make a, a point about now is that it dictation is a skill. Dictation is a skill in its own right. Um, when secretarial colleges were a thing, secretarial colleges, to be fair, may still be a thing. And I don't know if anybody does know, please do um, enlighten me. But, you know, trainee secretaries were trained in dictation. They were trained how to do it. And so that's something that we are going to have to train our students in, which just like when role play came in, means that we are having to teach another skill that actually has very little real life application in terms of using a foreign language. I don't think outside of my A-level lessons, because my A-level teacher really liked dictation, um, I don't think I've ever been dictated to in a foreign language, ever. Um, and so once again, I'm taking time out of my curriculum. I'm taking time out of being able to teach students interesting things about culture, fun things about grammar, interesting vocabulary and having to teach this skill that actually has no application whatsoever and and that's something that i really struggle with i struggle with wasting our students time because time in school is precious time in school is a commodity time in childhood is very important you know we are creating memories we should be creating memories we should be creating things that in 10 15 20 years however old our students and I be they four or 18 they will look back on fondly and if I'm now having to take time out of my curriculum where I can't do those things where I can't show a film where I can't do a food tasting because I'm having to teach these quite frankly useless skills for most of my students on top of having to cover an already dense curriculum then that is just depriving them of, of experiences that they could be having. And in some cases, experiences that they should be having. In schools that are situated in particularly deprived areas, quite often the only experience lots of children get of um, a visit abroad or a trip to the theatre or um, sushi for lunch is provided through school because parents are busy working, they can't afford trips abroad or the holidays are in the UK, whatever it might be. And so school should be a place that provides those experiences to those children. And once again, if we're having to take the time to, um, to teach skills that actually are only being used in, in an exam and have no other application in the classroom or in life, then we're not able to offer those experiences either. And so our, our students really are missing out. I hope that I'm wrong. 
I always hope that I'm wrong when I disagree with something. Um, I hope that the exam boards have seen something that I haven't yet seen and that ultimately the dictation and the reading aloud will be a use. And hopefully I will find a, a, a CPD that can show me what the use of these skills is. Uh, but right now I've, I've got nothing. And I'm actually, I was quite disheartened yesterday when I read over the new specification, when I read over the new sample assessment materials. This is incidentally why I very much enjoy teaching classics. <laughs> the format of classics exams, the format of Latin exams really hasn't changed for about 200 years. Maybe that is also a bad thing. Um, you know, maybe there should be some kind of nice medium ground between apparently changing how the GCSE works every four or five years and and not changing how classics works ever. But at least we kind of, we know where we are. We know what those classical skills are. And so it's all um, interesting times, I think is what I'm gonna say on it. It's interesting times. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Scotsman reports on strike action by Scottish teachers planned to take place in the coming weeks. Scottish Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville has said there is no separate pot of money to fund an improved pay deal for school staff and that any improved pay offer would involve diverting cash from other areas. Strike action was announced after recent ballots and will be the first such action for almost 40 years. School staff are due to strike on November the 24th, after members of Scotland's largest teaching union overwhelmingly voted in favour of the industrial action. The EIS union said 96% of its members backed the action via a ballot, which saw a turnout of 71%. The most recent offer of a 5% pay rise was rejected three months ago. Ms Somerville told the Scotsman that she was absolutely determined to try to reward staff with a pay rise closer to the 10% being sought by unions, but warned it would lead to difficult decisions in other areas. In Wales, school children have been given the green light to support their national team in the group game against Iran. 
the Welsh Government has agreed to let schools decide how to manage the timetables during the game, which kicks off at 10am on Friday the 25th of November. The team is in the nation's first World Cup for 64 years. The FA of Wales has organised a football Friday for the day of the Iran game. Around 1,100 schools throughout the country are preparing for a full day of football activity. The Welsh FA has created packs including bunting, footballs, flags and posters to mark the event. Skills sessions, inter-school matches and football festivals are also planned for either side of the Iran game. Pupils in both primary and secondary schools are planning to take part in the events. FE Week focuses on the efforts of colleges across the country that have been instrumental in helping refugees from the war in Ukraine build a home away from home in the UK. Since the war began, around 7 million citizens of Ukraine have left their homes and almost 150,000 have found sanctuary in the UK. The country's colleges have dedicated their efforts to laying on ESOL courses to help refugees master English, as well as other learning opportunities designed to help Ukrainians settle in. Whilst numbers vary from area to area, some colleges have signed more than 100 Ukrainian students onto courses. And not just for ESOL. At least 1,200 students are on A-level or other post-GCSE courses. But it's not just about teaching English. College staff have also worked to provide other practical support, such as free bus passes, lunch vouchers and loaned laptops. The full story can be found on the FE Week website. Finally, a new resource for secondary school age pupils has been launched to encourage young people to consider a career in the veterinary professions. The British Veterinary Association has endorsed the Vet Team in a Box resource, produced by University of Liverpool. The resource is designed in line with the Key Stage 3 National Curriculum and helps students participate in scenarios which aim to demystify the veterinary professions and remove perceived barriers to joining. The resource will be available later this month. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week let's talk gadgets and tech that helps us teach, but also might be something to hint at for a gift in the near future. Before I start, I'd like to define tech as anything that's been made that makes a difference to how we interact with the world. Usually for the better. A pencil or scissors, for example, are classed as tech in my definition. That being said, let's look at what a few internet searches have brought up as must-have tech for teachers. Mini whiteboards, a favourite of Nathan Ginn, have got to be super useful. Things to watch though is pens running out, do you also need a cloth or a board rubber, and primary teachers don't let the kids keep them in the trays with the books, they make them look messy and get ink all over them. Interactive screens, are you team interactive or could you have had a big TV and spent the rest on other things? I love interactivity but my subject lends itself to it. Are you simply presenting on an overpriced screen? Things to check out are open source interactive software that's compatible with different devices. Sometimes you can be locked in by software. Having something you can use on almost any board might be for you, especially if your school has a mixed estate of kit and as it's open source, it will be free. The presentation clicker is a classic. Things to watch for is losing it, leaving the USB dongle behind and also ensuring you don't use the built-in class three laser to blind the class. Does anyone really use a laser pointer? A webcam, a topic I've discussed in the past, a decent webcam nowadays doesn't need to be expensive and can do as much as a visualizer. Think 
purpose and audience. Then think desk space and the number of cables needed. What about simpler gadgets? Feedback stamps. With these, I'd just be certain the way feedback is given isn't going to change before you buy them to get value for money from the stamp. Ninja pens. Is it a ruler? Is it a pen? No, it's a spirit level and also a flat and cross-headed screwdriver. It looks cool, but if you get a cheap one, don't expect to be able to unscrew anything unless what you're unscrewing is made from cheese. As always, I'd love to hear about your favourite teaching tech. Let us know at TT Radio 2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I'm going to be honest, Steve. I have yet to see an interactive whiteboard used to its full potential in MFL teaching. Um, we looked for ways to use them and quite often it was, you know, drag and match, um, those sorts of games that, you know, yeah, it gets kids out of the seat, gets kids touching the board, but actually was it pedagogically useful? Was it any different to having them write a definition on the whiteboard or calling out the definition? Um, I don't know. I don't know. It depends, I suppose, on whether you think gamification, which I am actually a big advocate of. I, I love gamification in learning. Um, but whether you think the gamification of a lesson leads to better interaction, better um, concentration, which in turn leads to better retention um, and just making sure that that, that happens. But yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. My board right now is just a screen, um, and I was very insistent that I keep my dry wipe board because for me, a dry wipe board and a pen, in fact, is the the best piece of teaching kit that I can have. Um, but that's just for me. Let's talk about Bloom, shall we? I don't know about for you guys, but for me, Bloom has made a resurgence over the past 18 months, I think. He um, has come back into my school with a vengeance. Each classroom in our prep school now has a copy of the taxonomy. I've just tweeted a picture of Bloom's taxonomy uh, provided by the Vanderbilt University Center for Teaching. Uh, just in case you are unfamiliar, just in case it's been a little bit of time since you've seen it and you want to look over it again please do check my twitter that's at mr d lester um while i'm plugging my twitter you can use that as a way to get in touch if you've got any thoughts any comments on bloom and gagne as i talk about them this morning please do tweet me again that's at mr d lester or if you are listening on the podbean app if you're listening live you can of course text in i am always happy to take some interaction always happy to hear what people have to say so yeah, in my context, Bloom has made a resurgence and we are being encouraged once again to use Bloom's verbs as our learning objectives, as our learning outcomes, which I do actually find very, very helpful because I think that coming up with a decent learning objective can be very difficult. Finding one that really encapsulates what you want your lesson to be about, what you want your students to come out of your lesson knowing, but that is also broad enough so that if your lesson takes a turn, which sometimes they do, then it's not wasted and it's not a lie written in their book. I think that can be really difficult. 
We all know what we want our students to achieve in a lesson. You need to know that when you plan it. You know what your outcome is before you begin your starter so that you've got that map to get there. But it can be hard to encapsulate that in one sentence. Um, particularly, I think, if your school has a formula. So if you are, for example, in a primary school that is doing Walton Wilf, um, Walt is, uh, what are we learning today? Um, Wilf is what I'm looking for. So that's the, the learning outcome and the success criteria. It can be difficult to, uh, to phrase what you're trying to do in order to make it fit that template. So for me, actually having Bloom's Taxonomy there um, on the board with a list of verbs can, can prompt ideas for coming up with, with my outcome, for helping to phrase my outcome. It also can help to create routinization with students. So we can reduce our cognitive load right from the start of our lesson by not having hundreds of thousands of different ways to interpret a learning outcome. If our students get used to knowing that their outcome is always going to start with define, duplicate, discuss, recognize, classify, interpret, distinguish, operate, critique, and it's a very set list of verbs that they're going to use, then that's actually one less thing, one fewer thing for them to process, which means that from the start of the lesson, they actually don't have to worry about figuring out what they're going to do. They don't have to figure out the verb of their lesson. They can focus on what the content of the lesson is going to be. It's only a very small thing. It, it's maybe 90 seconds, two minutes while they're copying the learning objective down or however you share the learning objective with your class. But it's a thing that will reduce that cognitive load that will give them just that little tiny bit of extra brain space as they are working through your lesson to engage with the content, which let's be honest, is the most important thing. I'm a big, big fan of writing down lesson objectives and learning outcomes because I do think it helps to focus the students, it helps to keep them on track. If they start to go off track, you can say, okay, if they ask a question, for example, that is, is not at all relevant and you don't think is useful, then you can turn back to the learning outcome and say, okay, is this what we are talking about today? Obviously, if they ask a question that is interesting, that is useful, then by all means, go off on the tangent. Um, anyone who has ever sat in one of my lessons or listened to one of my talks knows that I love a tangent. So I'm not discouraging that, but it does actually give you a quick shorthand for some um, behavior management techniques to deal with low level disruption because you can just say, look back at your learning outcome, is what you're talking about right now, is the question that you've just asked relevant, is that going to help us? So I do like having them written down. Um, also, it's very useful for marking. If for whatever reason you've gone a few weeks in between lessons, and when you take your marking in, you've got just a list of words, or for example, in MFL, when we do a listening exam, they might, uh, a listening exercise, they might have written the numbers one to 10 in the margin of their books, and then just a list of random letters. And because it's been a couple of weeks since you taught that lesson, you might not be able to call to mind exactly what it was you were doing. Whereas you can look at the learning outcome that they've written down and go, oh, okay, yeah, that was that lesson. 
and it can be a nice prompt, a nice ed memoir for you as the teacher as well. So I do like that. I am an advocate. Um, I didn't think I would be, to be honest, when we had our laminated copies of Bloom Taxonomy popped into our pigeonholes, I was like, okay, something else for me to think about. But as always, the more I've tried it, the more that I've applied it, uh, the more I've come to like it. So to go back to Bloom and, and what he actually argued originally, we have a pyramid, well, a triangle, really, because it's two dimensional. I apologize to all maths teachers for that mistake. We have a triangle um, made of one, two, three, four, five, six, six sections. We've got remember at the bottom. So the most basic thing that a student can do in our lessons is remember. And I actually don't think that remembering is very basic at all. I think remembering things is actually very difficult. I think there are lots of cognitive processes that are involved in remembering, in taking something from the short-term to the long-term memory. Uh, and so I think that actually having this kind of triangle structure where we seemingly get more complex or better at the subject as we move up the triangle maybe underestimates the processes that are required with what comes towards the bottom. But we've got remember there on that bottom layer, which is the recalling of facts and basic concepts. On top of remember, we've got understand, which Bloom explains as the explaining of ideas or concepts. On top of that, we've got apply, using the information in new situations. And let's be honest, in most lessons, that's where we finish. Because in, a, in an environment where we are encouraged to have things recorded in books, we are encouraged to dish out worksheets, um, because that's how we prove that our kids have done something in a lesson, that application via the worksheet is kind of job done, box ticked. Also in terms of timing, in one lesson, a 35 minute lesson, a 45 minute lesson, and a one hour lesson, however long your lesson might be, that probably is all you have time for. And then when you start your next lesson, you go back to the bottom of the triangle because you are introducing something new. But Bloom does keep going. So on top of apply, we've got analyze, drawing connections among ideas. And that's very difficult. I've had my eyes opened this week to actually how difficult children find reasoning, both verbal and nonverbal. Um, the GCHQ National Languages Competition has been underway all week. Lots and lots of schools have taken part and some of the critique that I've seen on Twitter has all been the same thing about how difficult students have found it to access some of the puzzles. They are very straightforward, standard verbal reasoning puzzles, but students have struggled because quite often our children are not being trained in verbal and non-verbal reasoning skills for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of reasons. But it's that analysis, that drawing connections that they 
then do start to find very difficult because they are not used to having to draw connections. They are not trained in how to look at one rule and apply it to something that seems to be completely different on the surface, but actually underneath is very, very similar. And of course, if in our lessons we're stopping at apply the step below because we don't have time or because we think the worksheet is the most important part of our lesson, then we're not training that analysis. And so they're not actually going to get better at making these connections. Above analyze, we've got evaluate, justifying a stand or a decision. And that is easier in some subjects than in others. It can be done quite easily, I think, across the curriculum with questioning. So you, um, you ask a student a question, um, let's take, let's take some very simple division. You ask a year four child, what is uh, nine divided by three? And they tell you it's three. And you, the question you then ask is, okay, how do you know that? You're asking them to defend their answer. Now, unfortunately, lots of our children are trained to think that if you ask them a follow-up question, if you ask them an evaluation question, that means that it's wrong. And that's our fault. Because quite often when a student gets a question right, we say yes and we move on. And a follow-up question only comes if they get something wrong because we're trying to draw that correct knowledge out of them. We need to kind of untrain that thinking and get them to start evaluating, to get them to start justifying their reasoning so that they can prove to us that they know what they are doing. So if that year four child can say, oh, well, I know that it's nine because if I've, uh, I know that it's three, sorry, because if I've got nine jelly beans and I put them into three groups, then there are three of each group. Or if they pick up the the blocks that are on their desk, if you've been doing a, a kinesthetic style lesson and they physically show you moving everything into those groups, then that's the justification. And on top of that, the, the zenith of the triangle, we have got create, produce new or original work, which sometimes we think we're doing when in fact we're still at the application stage. Because I've done that. I've thought that I've had my students creating when I've had them, uh, let's say, in year three French. One of the things that I like to do is to get them to make a poster about themselves. So I, I print off their school photo uh, onto a sheet of A4 paper and I get them to write, you know, Bonjour, je m'appelle Sam, j'ai huit ans, j'ai un chien, j'ai un père et une mère. And in my head, that's creating, because in my head, that is producing new or original work, because that poster didn't exist before. But actually, what they're doing is they're just applying the knowledge. They're just demonstrating, they're using. They are not assembling, they are not constructing, they're not developing, they're not really authoring. These are the words that, uh, that Vanderbilt University Center for Teaching has on its picture. And so once again, I quite often get myself stuck at that apply stage because I am not moving my students through and I'm not always cognizant. I'm not always mindful 
of which stage all of my different um, my different activities come. So that is in a nutshell Bloom's taxonomy. If you imagine a triangle, or if you go over to my Twitter at Mr D Lester, you don't need to imagine because I've just tweeted it. We have got starting at the base. Remember, on top of that, understand. On top of that, apply. On top of that, analyze. On top of that, evaluate. And on top of that, very top of the triangle, create. Now, this all came about in 1956. So this is not new. This is not at all new. Um, it was published in a work called Taxonomy of Educational Objectives uh, that we've come to call Bloom's Taxonomy. Uh, it wasn't just by Bloom. Uh, Benjamin Bloom worked with Max Engelhardt, Edward Forrest, uh, Walter Hill and David Crathfall to produce this. And um, it has been in use ever since, particularly in the US. Um, US teaching has really pioneered this, has really moved with this. Uh, in the UK, I've noticed that it comes in and out of fashion. Uh, right now, it seems to be back in. The collaborators, Bloom et al, they came up with these, these categories knowledge, comprehension, application, analysis, synthesis, evaluation. And then they kind of played with that wording a little bit um, to try and figure out exactly what they wanted to say. But ultimately, it came down to this idea that at its most basic, teaching and learning, I suppose learning, involves the recall of specifics and universals, the recall of methods and processes, or the recall of a pattern, structure, or setting. This is taken directly from the appendix of the Taxonomy of Educational Objectives. Um, that goes all the way up to evaluation, which concerns itself with judgments about the value of material and methods for given purposes. How useful is what we've just learned? How well does it get across what we need it to get across? And again, there are some places in teaching that that is, is not appropriate. Again, if I think about language teaching, let's say I teach my year 10s the simple future, the I will version of the future instead of the I am going to version of the future. Their evaluation might be, oh, well, actually, this isn't very useful because I will and I am going to means the same thing. But it doesn't. And it might be that they've not internalized that lesson. They've not internalized the difference between I will and I'm going to. And so their evaluation is off because their analysis didn't quite hit the mark halfway up the triangle. And ultimately, does it matter if we think that there is no real difference between I will and I'm going to? Does it matter if you don't understand that difference in English? Because in French, this difference exists. And so if we're going to speak French in air quotes properly, we need to be able to do it. Whereas if you're in a creative subject, let's say you're in a drama lesson, for example, again, um, friends of the show will know I, I have 
theatrical experience so while I'm not a drama teacher this is a, a subject I feel that I can speak on if you're in a drama lesson and your students put together a tableau a frozen picture to depict a scene they might then turn around and say oh actually tableau wasn't the best technique to do that with because we couldn't get across the personalities of our characters maybe a mime would have been better so in that instance evaluation is useful because they're able to reflect on their own technique. And perhaps that's what they should be doing. Rather than reflecting on the material, the value of the material, they can reflect on the method that they used to learn that material. Again, we also have to take context into account here. I think one of the reasons that Bloom has taken off in the US, whereas he comes back and forth in the UK, is that in the UK, we are constricted by exam boards. We have to teach what the exam boards tell us they are going to assess. Whereas there is in the US a little bit more freedom in terms of what is taught than here. Because unless you are training an AP class, for example, or unless you are training, unless you are training for a standardized test, which don't exist in everything for everything, you do have a little bit more freedom over your curriculum than we do. And so in this case, it might be that students are better able to evaluate the material that they are taught by saying, oh, is this actually relevant for my educational purposes? Whereas in the UK, we're constrained because the automatic answer has to be yes, it might come up in the exam. Which is, is not a good thing, in my opinion. Bloom's Taxonomy, though, was revised in 2001. A group of, of cognitive psychologists and curriculum theorists and researchers came together. Um, and they produced the revision that's called a taxonomy for teaching, learning and assessment. And so it takes away, um, as, as Vanderbilt says in its article on this, it takes away the idea of educational objectives, which Bloom had in his title. And it tries to move it towards more dynamic classification, the idea that the classification can change. So... This is where gerunds actually were used, the ing form of the verb were used to classify the parts of the triangle. And it might seem like a very small change, but it's a very important change because the ing form of the verb recognises that it's an ongoing process. So remember has now been replaced with, or can be replaced with, recognising and recalling. Understand, on top of that, we've got interpreting, exemplifying, classifying, summarising, inferring, comparing, explaining. Apply becomes executing, uh, executing, executing, <laughs> implementing. Analyse becomes differentiating, organising, attributing. Evaluate becomes checking, critiquing. Create becomes generating, planning and producing. By taking those ing forms of the verbs, those gerunds, what is happening linguistically, what, what our brains are now processing, is this idea that, oh, it's not a 
triangle that I'm moving up. It's not a pyramid that I'm climbing. I'm determined to, to argue that Bloom's taxonomy is a pyramid and not a triangle. Um, it's not something where I've accomplished this stage, so now I move on to the next one. But that every activity, every lesson should be this ongoing process. So it's not a case of my students remember, and so now I move on to making sure they understand. But it's a case of by remembering, by recalling what I told you five minutes ago, you are able to exemplify this rule. And by exemplifying this rule, we are applying our knowledge. And once we've applied our knowledge in organizing what we are talking about, we are critiquing the way in which we have learnt. And so instead of becoming, like I said, instead of being this pyramid to climb, it becomes this ongoing process. It becomes this constant building of knowledge. I was trained as a... Um, I, I was trained to believe that knowledge is built through communication. I was trained to believe that knowledge comes not because children arrive in our classroom empty-headed and we fill them, but because of experiences that they have. And these experiences are ongoing. They happen all of the time. And so again, just by tweaking our understanding of Bloom's taxonomy slightly, we recognize that and we understand that all of these things are ongoing, that, that knowledge is a constant creation. But why should we use Bloom's taxonomy? How is this different? How is this more useful than anything else that we might talk about? Well, Vanderbilt says there are three primary reasons. Uh, the first is that objectives or learning goals are important to establish in a pedagogical interchange so that teachers and students alike understand the purpose of that interchange. And that's true. How many times have we had, if you teach older students, how many times have you heard somebody say, when am I going to use this in my life? What's the point of learning this? Why do I need to know this? By sharing the objective, you explain to them why they need to know it. Now, this is where we try and figure out what the point of a learning objective is, what the point of a lesson is. Is the point of my lesson, this is in the exam, so you need to know it. If that is the point of my lesson, is that something that I share with my students? Do we need a broader application? In my opinion, yes. Because in my opinion, one of the things that we should be doing, particularly either at secondary in our specialisms or at primary in the subjects we lead or the subjects that we most enjoy, that we consider our strengths, is to show our students why they're important, to share our love for them, to share our passion, our enthusiasm. And so if you are telling a student, oh, I'm teaching you this just because it's on the exam, you're kind of downplaying the importance of it. 
you're telling them that there is no real life application for this skill that you're teaching them. So we absolutely do need to be exploring the different reasons why we are teaching things. And this is where I can critique my own learning outcomes, my own lesson objectives. Because I've been guilty before of popping up on the board, our lesson objective today is to learn the present tense. That's not a great learning objective. It is what my lesson is about, but it doesn't tell my students why they need to know the present tense. Um, I've done it in primary, I've done it in primary classics, where I've written as my lesson objective, we are learning about um, hoplite soldiers. But I didn't explain to them why they needed to know about hoplite soldiers. Hopefully my lesson got across the fact that I thought it was interesting, that I thought it was something that they would like to know about, but I didn't tell them why they needed to know it. And when I reflect on some of the CPD that I've been in, where I've been sitting in the room thinking, why do I need to be here? And nobody told me why I needed to be there. I was just there because I had to be. That's the same experience that students have. So by using Bloom's taxonomy, by, by pulling in these dynamic verbs, we can explain to them either why the actual skill that we're teaching them is important. You need to know the present tense so that you can actually have a decent conversation with somebody or why it's interesting. You need to learn the present tense because there is a rule here that if you can do this, you will be able to do all other French grammar. Something like that, but less wordy because that's going to take about five minutes to write down. Uh, the second point that Vanderbilt came up with is organizing objectives helps to clarify objectives for, for themselves and students. Organizing objectives helps to clarify objectives for themselves and for students. So if you have your objectives planned out, it gives you your route map. For most of us, again, our route map is an exam. It is an assessment of some kind. And so if we have our objectives written down, we can mentally tick off, yes, I did that. And we can make sure that we are hitting all of those stepping stones, all of those pathways towards the assessment. Finally, having an organized set of objectives helps teachers to plan and deliver appropriate instruction, design valid assessment tasks and strategies, and ensure that instruction and assessment are aligned with the objectives. Again, I think if we're very honest, and very few people would want to admit this, we've all designed an assessment that missed the mark. I certainly have. I've given assessments before that when I was writing them, I thought was related to what I had taught the students. But actually, as I was marking it, when I was a bit more removed from the assessment and I was looking at it cold, I was like, no, this, this was not actually what I taught them. And so it ended up being a bit pointless. And so by once again, by using Bloom's taxonomy and by knowing where in the triangle we are, we can actually make our assessment more meaningful. We can make it more relevant. So that's Bloom in a bit of a nutshell. Um, I'm very familiar with Bloom. You know, like I said, Bloom has come in and out of fashion uh, four or five times in, in my 16 years of teaching. 
So yeah, I like to think that I know him quite well. Next up, we're going to talk about Gagné, who I don't know so well. His work is is not as well um, as well publicised in British education. Uh, but it will be interesting to explore his work, which is very similar to Bloom, uh, but not quite the same. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. So, Robert Gagné came up with his Conditions of Learning Theory in 1985. So his work is is not as old as Bloom's Taxonomy, but it is as old as I am. Um, so that's nice. Um, his, his conditions of learning theory comes up with five categories of learning outcomes and nine events of instruction. And Gagné says that if you combine those, then you have got a framework for conditions in a classroom that will create, that will encourage learning. The idea behind this is that learning must be intentional and purposeful. Not so long ago, I did a whole show on deliberate practice and how I had spent a very long time in my career misunderstanding what deliberate practice actually means. Um, And so my original theory of deliberate practice, the idea that everything that you do in your classroom is, is planned to ensure that your objectives are met, is in fact Gagné's theory. I just didn't understand that that's what it was at the time. So he, his theory identifies the general types of learned capabilities. So he described these things as behavioral changes. Those are the learning outcomes. So the way in which the learner changes as a result of the learning process um, that the learning theory has to explain. Once those learning outcomes are identified, an analysis of the conditions that govern the learning and the remembering can then occur. He also says uh, that there are different ways that instructional events should be designed for the different learning outcomes, different capabilities. So depending on what your learning outcome is going to be, your lesson will be different. That is relatively obvious. Again, if I'm teaching, um, 
let's say that I'm teaching the new GCSE in French that I complained about at the top of the show, uh, and I'm teaching reading aloud, then the way that I plan that lesson is going to involve lots of speaking work. I'm going to need to prepare a text for the students to read aloud. I'm going to need to print that off so that they all have their own copy. I'm going to need to do it on the coloured paper for my students who require coloured paper, or I'm going to need to make sure that I'm providing reading rulers for my students who need reading rulers. And my whole lesson is going to be based around this passage that we are reading out loud. And there might be points where I am reading, there will be points where the students are reading, I might need to get a separate classroom so that I can send students who are embarrassed off into a space on their own. And that's how I'm going to design that lesson. Whereas if I'm doing an essay writing lesson, that's going to need a question that is printed off. That's going to need some lined paper or exercise books for them to write in. That's going to need a fresh set of pens for when I get the inevitable, oh, I left my pen in physics or my pen has just run out because I had a practice exam in English. And so everything that I need is going to depend on what my learning outcome is. Which is quite different to when you go to start your lesson and you suddenly realise, oh no, I haven't actually thought of what I need their learning outcome to be to write in their books. And you just shove something up on the board. Which again, I think is something that most of us have done. Um, I hope it's something that most of us have done, otherwise it's just me, and I need to pray that my head of department is not listening to this show. Um, so the idea that, that I do approve of, that I do believe to be correct, is that our learning outcomes should actually dictate how our lesson takes place. They shouldn't just be arbitrary things that we are having students copying down from the board because we feel that an inspection tells us to, because our line manager tells us to, because we are worried about the feedback of a book scrutiny if we don't have it there. So there are four main elements to Gagné's conditions of learning theory. There is, there is the conditions of learning, the association learning, the five categories of learning outcomes, and then the nine events of instruction. Now, if you are a VAC person and you are sitting there thinking, oh, I'm not an auditory learner, I'm not going to take this all in, please don't worry, because I will tweet out the article that I used for coming up with this show, that I based this show around, that I used for my research um, when we are done here today. So you can take a look at that. My Twitter is at Mr. D. Lester. So you will be able to read through the article there. Gagné's conditions of learning then describe the internal and external capabilities that learners have. The internal and the external. The internal conditions are the ones that are changed during the learning process. Their attitudes, their mentalities, what they actually know. The external conditions are the stimuli that are around the learner, the teaching environment, the teaching and the class. So when you think about the conditions of learning, every new, what they call learning situation, 
will have a different point of prior learning. So that's a different internal capability, different knowledge that the students already have. And it will have a different point of external learning because you might be in a different classroom. My year nine French class, for example, I teach in two different classrooms. So there are two different environments there. There will be different dynamics in that class, depending on what kind of day the students are having, and that will have an impact. And so this means that all kinds of learning by association, which comes next, are controlled by the internal and external learning conditions over which teachers have no control. That's not mentioned in the article that I read, but it's what jumped out at me. If you are lucky enough to have your own classroom base in which all of your lessons are taught, then you do have some control over the external learning conditions because you have complete control over what is up on the walls, over how clean your desks are, if you've had time to wipe them down between lessons, all that sort of thing. So there is some control that you have there. But we don't control what mood our students come into that classroom in. We don't control whether two of them have had a fight with each other in the corridor on their way to the lesson. And so now there is that friction that is impacting the whole rest of the group. We don't actually control what they have learnt in the lesson before. We don't control their prior learning. We control the prior teaching, but we do not control the prior learning. So from my perspective, Gagné actually starts from a case of this is what teachers do not have any control over or have very little control over. And on top of that, each lesson starts afresh because there will be a brand new class dynamic, depending on what has happened um, in between your last lesson and this one. There will have been new prior learning based on what you did in your last lesson and the experiences that they have had outside of their last lesson. One of my year eights this week came up to me in German and very proudly told me a new word that his dad had taught him. Um, I was prepared for that because we'd had... We'd had parents' evening, so his dad told me what word he was going to teach him, so that was fine. But, you know, that was something of which I had absolutely no control because it was learning that happened outside of, uh, outside of school completely. And that's something that we as the teachers need to adapt to. And in some ways, coming up with our lesson objectives help us, helps us to get some of that control back because it creates a very defined lesson for us to teach. Then there is the association learning and the association learning is then itself split into three categories, classical conditioning, operant conditioning and verbal association. So classical conditioning is the process in which your learner associates something that they already know with a new stimulus or a new signal. So it's that transfer of skills. It's that ability to take something that they can already do and use it in a new situation. Operant conditioning is the process in which the response within the learner is um, instrumental. And so it leads to the reinforcement of what they know. 
Verbal association, of course, occurs when your learner makes a verbal response to a stimulus. And then there's the chaining process, where all of those individual associations are grouped into a sequence. For example, a learner, and this is an example given by Gagné, a learner can recite verbal sequences consisting of lists of words. Or in reception, your learner can recite the alphabet from A to Z. So that's that chaining, where they are going from knowing that the alphabet exists to, oh, I've got to say my letters in order. They've kind of learned the alphabet by rote. And so they start coming out with it. That's instrumental and it reinforces the alphabet within them. And they are responding to that stimulus of, can you say the alphabet? Can you sing the alphabet? However you might be teaching it. Gagné said that these four prototypes, he called them, of associative learning are the individual components of human capability and that chaining process is the learning. So Gagné basically said that your classical conditioning, your operant conditioning, your verbal association are all pre-learning and then when that is chained together that's when the learning happens because that's when the the information is internalized. Then he's got the five categories of learning outcome. So those are, and this is kind of where Bloom's taxonomy also comes into play, the intellectual skills, that's the knowing how to do it, the procedural knowledge, knowing that um, in German, to conjugate our infinitive to the present form for I, we take the EN off of the end of the infinitive and we add an E. So spielen, to play, becomes spieler, play. That's an intellectual skill. That's knowing how to do something. Then there's verbal information, which is the being able to state ideas, having declarative knowledge, asking a student to explain to you how you make the present tense in German. Then there are the cognitive strategies. Those are the techniques of thinking. That's the problem solving, having the approach to solving the problems. Then there are the motor skills. So that's not necessary, perhaps, in all lessons, although writing is a motor skill but it's being able to have movements in a particular sequence of acts that allows you to achieve something. So in sport, the motor skills are very, very important. In driving, the motor skills are very, very important. And then there are attitudes, the mental state that influences the choices of personal actions. And this is what really jumped out at me as being important. This is why I actually think that I like Gagné over Bloom. Because in education, we often, we often write off student attitudes. As teachers, if we say that a student of ours just doesn't like our subject, they've got a negative attitude towards what we're teaching, 
we're often told that it's our fault and that our lessons need to be more interesting, more engaging. But sometimes students just don't want to learn. Sometimes students want to learn some subjects, but not ours. Sometimes they're in our classroom because they have to be. Sometimes they're reading a book because their parents have told them to. And sometimes that can change. I, I was watching a, a YouTube video yesterday. There was an interview with a guy who has what was claimed the most expensive book collection in England. Um, it was a clickbait title, but I fell for it. Um, and he said his collection started with Harry Potter because he hated reading as a child. His mum forced him to read Harry Potter because she had read in the newspaper about how it was revolutionising reading. Um, he was quite reluctant to do it, but he did because his mum made him. And then he became, from, from reading that, he became an avid reader and a collector of books. So sometimes the, the attitude can change as a result of enthusiasm or just giving them the opportunity to explore a subject. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they just don't like it. It didn't matter what my maths teacher did at school. She could not get me to enjoy maths. I did it. I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that I learned it because the maths that I learned has been useful in my life as an applied linguist. Um, lots of them, the linguistics papers that I've written have required maths as, as I've, you know, categorized vocabulary and, and figured out frequencies of words and that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't enjoy it. And that's not the teacher's fault. My maths teacher was lovely. I actually really liked my maths teacher. It was just not how I worked. It was just not something that I found enjoyable. And I hope that nobody told her that she didn't do her job properly because my attitude was, I don't enjoy maths. I hope that nobody told her she didn't do her job properly because maths was my lowest grade at GCSE. Because that's absolutely not true. That was all down to me. And so I like Gagné's work because it does accept that our students are all individual, actual, living, breathing people with attitudes, with prejudices, with preconceptions that, yes, we as the teachers can try and fight and we do try and fight, but we're not always going to win. And we shouldn't be blamed if we don't win. Maybe if we don't try, that's where we can get criticism, but not if we don't win, because our students are people. So Gagné suggested that if the five categories of learning are combined in a way that is both rational and systematic, then we can come up with a set of ideas that create a theory of instruction. So if you look at those, those five categories of learning outcomes and you figure out how to combine them within your practice, you can come up with a statement of practice. You can justify how you teach. Then he came up with the nine events of instruction. So these are the nine things, the nine external things that help learning to occur. And they are designed to achieve each of the five learning outcomes that we just discussed. So he numbers the instructional events from one to nine in a sequential order. 
and they go, gaining attention. So that's right from the outset. That's the moment where you say to your class, come on in, sit down, take out your books, be quiet, please, I'm about to start. Or however you, you start off your lesson, okay, you get their attention. Then comes informing learners of the objective, letting them know why they are there. And in some ways, you can combine those two. Your lesson objective could be an attention grabber. If you've got something cool coming up, if you've got something particularly out of the box that you're doing, just having that displayed as your learning objective on the board can gain their attention. We are looking at setting up a pen pal scheme, um, probably with our year sixes. And I was talking to, to our head of Prep French about this yesterday. And I'm really excited for the day when year six go into her classroom and they, they see learning objective, write a letter to your pen pal up on the board. Because that's an immediate attention grabber. That's different that's exciting, that's new, that gets them asking questions. So those are the two that we start with, gaining attention, informing learners of the objective. Number three, stimulating recall of prior learning. Again, recall is big at the moment. So something in there, something that you do, has to stimulate that recall of what has come next. It warms up the brain. Um, back in June, I did a whole talk on this. I did a talk on how you can use um, your starter as a recall activity. So that instead of using your starter as an elicitation of what's coming, you use it to recall what has come before, even if it is not related to your current lesson at all. Um, I did that with the Teach Me MFL Icons group, and I believe you can still go back onto YouTube and see that talk. I will um, I will tweet out a link a bit later on. But once you have gained their attention and told them um, what the objective is, you stimulate recall of prior learning. For me, that comes as a starter uh, because I don't really want to spend a lot of time recalling prior learning that might not be relevant to exactly what we're doing today because that can impact cognitive load. Then you present the stimulus. So you come up with what you are learning about today, your key question, your um, big idea, however it is that you and your subject present. Then you do your modeling. Then you elicit performance. You give them their worksheet. You provide feedback. You assess performance. Then you finish your plenary. Should be something that enhances retention and transfer. So your plenary, and I think we've we've all done this, um, should not be hands up if you think you've learned something today, or tell me what you think you've learned today, because actually that is not really helping our learners to improve. That's reassuring us as teachers that we've done the right thing. So that's kind of an ego boost rather than a a legitimate pedagogical activity. Your plenary should be something that enhances the retention, that, that makes sure that the uh, lesson is being transferred from short-term to long-term memory. So the plenary should be a game, it should be a discussion, it should be an activity, it should be something that is still focused on 
what your lesson was about rather than than a nice fluffy metacognitive let's reflect on what we've learned today by all means do some reflection uh, but that should probably come after you have enhanced your retention and transfer so Gagné basically said that if you bring all of those nine things together and if you structure your lesson in that way using those nine points then you are going to create an optimal condition for learning and again this is what i like i like that Gagné's theory looks a lot more at the conditions for learning rather than the method of instruction and this is kind of the crux of what i wanted to get at today so an hour and 15 minutes to talk about what i really wanted to talk about and that is combining the two this was inspired by something i read when i was doing my research for last week's show um and, and it was just on an offhand comment made by somebody that said if we can bring gagne and bloom together what we actually have is a method in which we can create an optimal learning environment with optimal learning activities. And isn't that ultimately what we as teachers want to do? And for those of us who are engaged in professional development, um, I currently am doing a master's degree in translation. Is that not what we want for ourselves as learners? Do we not want our instructors to be giving us the very best of their instruction? And do we not want the environment? So in my case, that's my room. Uh, I'm a distance learner. So it's, you know, the place that I sit and, and do my studying. Do I not want that to be conducive to studying? Do I need to take the TV out of my room? <laughs> so that I can concentrate. And the answer to that is no, because I personally like background noise when I'm studying. I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm the teacher who has to say to my students, no, you can't listen to music while you are doing this activity because the science says that that doesn't help you to concentrate very well, knowing full well that I personally do need something on in the background to concentrate. Um, the hypocrisy is real in my classroom. So ultimately, I think that is where we are leaving off today. We want to create optimal conditions for learning. Bloom alone doesn't do that because Bloom alone, while helpful, and as I kind of focused on, while useful for helping us to verbalize exactly what it is we want to teach and help us to figure out how we're going to teach it, doesn't take into account the conditions around learning, doesn't take into account the structure of a lesson, doesn't take into account how our learners are feeling when they come in, whether they want to be there, what our classroom looks like, all of those sorts of things. In the same way, Gagné alone looks a lot at the stimuli for learning, but doesn't take into account what we as teachers actually do. And I think, I think that's why Bloom tends to have more cachet than Gagné does in the teaching sphere. I think as teachers, we focus on what we can control. We focus on what we produce, the resources that we have, what we buy in, all of those sorts of things. Because 
we know that we don't control the attitudes of our learners, um, despite the fact that we're told that we should be able to. Um, we know that we have very limited control over our environment, over our classroom. Now, again, this is where the American situation of, of Gagne comes into play, because those of you who are teachers on social media, you have probably seen our US colleagues who produce beautiful classrooms, really, really lovely learning environments because they spend so much of their own money buying in their resources. Because that's how the US system unfortunately works. Everything is provided by the teacher or the, the very generous people who will fill the list as we see at the beginning of each August. And so because that is ingrained a lot more as part of their teaching, that the teacher will take a lot of ownership over the room, will go out to Walmart, will go out to Target, and will buy wallpapers and border roll and, you know, whatever they might need. And they then create the learning space that they want to have, quite often a themed learning space. I've seen some lovely classrooms themed to be like cafes, and I've seen classrooms themed after Harry Potter, um, all sorts of beautiful things that they have come up with. And so I think maybe that's why Gagné um, focused a lot on the environment. In the UK, we don't quite have that freedom um, because we are more fortunate. And, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice funding for freedom at all. But our school budgets pay for how the classrooms look. They pay for the, the resources that we use to put up on our walls. And so unless we are willing to go out and spend our own money, um, we quite often get the things that are provided by the educational companies for use in the classroom. So we have a modicum of control over our classroom environment, but it's not as much. Um, and for that, I am grateful, quite honestly. The fact that I don't need to go out and spend my own money on borders and backing paper and staples and sugar paper and everything else that you need to make a classroom look nice, um, I am very, very grateful for. But it is also, you know, very, very important. The environment of learning is very important. And, and we need to bring those two together. We need to create a nice melange, a mix of the two of them in order to create what is an optimal learning environment. Because let's be honest, that's why we're in school. That's why our students are there. Our students are there to learn. They don't have a choice. By law, student, by law, children have to have an education. Um, most of our students are there, are in school to do that. I did do a show on um, on homeschooling way, way back in July, I believe. July or August, it was one of my first shows, the third show, actually. Uh, so please do go back and listen to that if you are interested. But do take some time to look over Bloom, to look over Gagné, if you are not very uh, au fait with his work. I am just about to tweet out the link um, to the article around which I did all of my Gagné research for this show. Um, and I would be interested if you can think of some nice ways, some nice practical methods to combine Bloom's taxonomy and Gagné's uh, conditions of learning theory. I would love to hear them. I would love to hear them because I know that it's necessary. I know that it's doable. And I know that combining the two is going to create the best possible learning environment for our learners. 
I would just be interested to see how people would like to do that. I am the only Teach Talk radio show today. So I do hope that I have um, scratched your itch for some professional development on this fine Saturday. Um, If I haven't, and you are still eager for more, please remember that uh, on the Podbean app, on Spotify, on um, Apple, on any um, uh, any service where you get your podcasts, you can go back and listen to our back catalogue. I've got a whole host of shows that you can listen to, and so do all of my wonderful, talented, interesting colleagues here at Teach Talk Radio. So you can go back and have a listen. Next Saturday, uh, I am join. I have a guest next Saturday, um, which is quite rare on my show, um, but I'm always glad when I have somebody to to chat to. I'm joined by Lucy Dresnin, who is a head of German. So I'm having another German extravaganza, and we are going to talk about how important it is to use our own life experiences um, in our teaching, and how we can draw on the life that we have outside of teaching and put that into our work. And for those of you who are not teachers, because I know that I do have a, a, a very lovely core audience of people who are here because they are interested in in different ways of educating children that are not teaching. Um, I will make sure that we talk about how you can use your own life experiences in uh, your writing, your drama, however it is you educate children um, outside of the classroom. So please do tune in at nine o'clock next Saturday morning. That is Saturday the 19th of November for my chat with Lucy. Um, Thank you all very, very much. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. It has been lovely as ever to have breakfast with you. And I will speak to you all next week. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.